Внимание! Говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. Many of the Russians who took to the streets last weekend to protest the jailing of opposition leader Alexei Navalny also had Belarus on their minds. There were red and white Belarusian flags and chants of long live Belarus on Moscow's Pushkin Square. As Viktor Tsoi's iconic Perestroika-era rock anthem Pitimien, a song beloved by opponents of Alexander Lukashenko, blared from car radios. Navalny's supporters say they have been closely studying the developments in Belarus since mass protests broke out there in August, hoping to draw lessons for their own battle against the regime of Vladimir Putin. But the solidarity and synergy between the Russian and Belarusian protesters is about much more than the contagion effects of political and social change in two neighboring former Soviet states. In uniting the separate struggles against Lukashenko and Putin, turning them into a common cause against a Putin-Lukashenko axis, the Russian and Belarusian streets are changing the dynamics in both countries and the dynamic between them in unpredictable ways. So what happens next? Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Vilnius, which is a city I miss dearly and love immensely, is veteran Belarusian journalist Franak Vechorka, an advisor to Belarusian opposition leader Svetlana Vikhanovskaya, and also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Welcome to the podcast, Franak. I've wanted to do this for a very long time. Thank you, Brian. Happy to be here. Happy to see you here. And also joining us from Washington, D.C.'s very hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegabaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech University, and a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University. And like both Franek and myself, Maria is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Welcome back, Maria. Great to see you. Thanks for having me, Brian. I don't think I'm senior yet, but I'll have it. But I'll, I'll yeah, I, it. I, I, I think you're a non-resident senior. I believe that's what your bio says. You don't, you don't give yourself enough credit. So let's get into it here. The, the, the synergy, I, I wrote about this for the Atlantic Council this week. Um, I, I wrote a piece about this. The synergy and solidarity between the protesters in Russia and Belarus and the effects of this synergy and solidarity is a topic that I've been kind of paying attention to for a little while passively, decided to get a little more active on it this week. And I, in my piece for the Atlantic Council this week, I effectively argued that the simultaneous unrest in both countries limits Russia's options to control outcomes in Belarus, um, which is a country the Kremlin has long viewed as a satellite and a client. I think the Belarusian people have something to say about that, but that's how the Russians view it. Additionally, the protests in both countries kind of tightly bind the fates of Putin and Lukashenko, two men who have been in power for 21 and 26 years, respectively, and who are widely believed to detest one another. But like it or not, they are now stuck with each other. 
it's somewhat reminiscent. I think also, and I want to get to this in the, in the second half of the program, this situation is reminiscent of the late period in the Soviet Union, when solidarity among democratic movements in different union republics in the USSR put immense pressure on the federal center in Moscow. Franek, I've often argued that real deep, meaningful political change in Belarus was going to be really difficult as long as Russia remained an authoritarian and imperial state. And in this sense, the struggle for freedom and democracy in Belarus cannot be separated from that struggle in Russia itself. Would you agree with that, Franek? Brian, actually, I do agree because the regimes of Lukashenko and Putin, they have a symbiotic relationship and they help each other, they support each other, they copycat each other. I often repeated that Lukashenko's Belarus is often the playground, the sandpit for Putin. You know, Lukashenko tried to repress political opponents in, in, in one way or introduce the crazy law on the parasites. And later, Putin is looking for other opportunities and other solutions in order to pacify, to contain the protest movement. But on the other hand, I also see the change in Belarus society. This is the quality change. Belarusians one year ago and Belarusians today, these are two different nations. Belarusians discovered their own history, their own culture, identity. They brought the Belarusian flags that were prohibited for so many years. And now people self-organize themselves. They didn't have such tradition for dozens of years. And suddenly they create these neighborhood communities. They create, they organize their regional rallies. They organize their own campaigns based on their regional identities. This is something that is extraordinary. And of course, it will be difficult to get out of this Russian sphere of influence for Belarusians, but the process of formation of national identity helps a lot Belarusians to become more autonomous. And at some point, this change will, will become critical. I'm glad you mentioned that a year ago, this is a very different Belarusian society, because it was just a little over a year ago, Franek, that you and I together testified before the U.S. Helsinki Commission over on Capitol Hill here in Washington. And we were kind of looking at the Russian-Belarusian relationship. And at the time, I was arguing that Lukashenko, for all his faults, and they are many, he was keeping the Russians out. He was not capitulating entirely to Putin. And that this created a very difficult needle for the West to thread at this time, because Lukashenko was protecting Belarusian sovereignty for all his other faults. And now that needle is no longer difficult to thread, because the way Lukashenko has responded to the protests has kind of turned off any option of him playing to the West, which he would periodically do, both in an effort to maintain Belarusian sovereignty and to leverage more subsidies out of Moscow. Let's call a spade a spade here. So how do you see this change in the relationship between Putin and Lukashenko and Lukashenko in the West? This is a very interesting dynamic that's going on here. Lukashenko was playing the geopolitical seesaw. We were joking that in summertime he's more pro-Western, in wintertime <laughs> he's more pro-Kremlin. Uh, he was trying to get benefits and take advantages of being between West and East to trade, to negotiate better conditions for himself. But in fact, this revolution, this changes in in last six months, they revealed his true identity. For now, he is the only and the most pro-Russian politician in Belarus. And the support of him by Kremlin 
is continuing only because there is no other pro-Russian politician. Kremlin was not prepared for this revolution, for this uprising, and it found out that Lukashenko is the last person Kremlin can really count on. So basically, we had Lukashenko who was playing this role of the defender of Belarus sovereignty, but in reality, he was always Soviet man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we've created a situation now where it really, truly is the Russian and Belarusian streets, right? The oppositions in Russia against the Putin-Lukashenko axis. I mean, you really have this very interesting thing. This I want to turn to Maria on this because, Maria, you follow the Russian opposition very, very closely. You follow Russian public opinion very closely. You've probably forgotten more about those two things than I'll ever know in my life. And we saw a very similar dynamic. Back in 2013, 2014, during the early stages of the Euromaidan uprising in Ukraine, which briefly united the Russian and Ukrainian oppositions at the time. I remember Boris Nemtsov at a demonstration that time with a and he, he, talking to journalists saying, you know, we support ourselves by supporting Ukraine. It's one struggle. Right. Now, that, of course, was stifled eventually by the annexation of Crimea, the war in the Donbass, which temporarily consolidated Russian society around this fake patriotism, and it marginalized the opposition. Maria, do you have any reason to believe that this time will be different? I mean, can Putin pull this kind of patriotic thing out of his hat again this time? Thank you, Brian, and thank you very much for organizing this very important discussion, I think, comparison between Belarusian protests in Russia are the key today. So first of all, I don't think the Crimea option is available for Putin at this time. You correctly point that out in your excellent piece for the Atlantic Council that, yes, Crimea is a one-time game, Mm -hmm. and it did certainly have a particular importance uh, for the Russian population. There was this resentment of Crimea being in the public mood unfairly, quote-unquote, transferred to Ukraine during the Soviet times. And also it's much, let's face it, warmer area. No offense, (laughs) Franek. So in this sense, Russia that lacks kind of warmer uh, climate zones actually also is attracted to this area just because uh, it has this image of the summer resort in the minds for many Russians. Belarus does not have that attraction in the public mind and repeated polls in Russia demonstrate that there is no particular desire on the side of Russians to incorporate Belarus into the country. Now that the economy is stagnating, it's been hit very badly by pandemics. Now that Russians realize that the Kremlin may be spending a little bit too much outside of the country and a little bit too little on its own citizens. In my own research, I actually show that it's a trade-off. Russians are willing, they, they have these imperialistic inclinations, of course, to take care of the brotherly nations and whatnot, but that is when the economy is doing well. That is when their own problems, they're not very bothered by internal problems at home. Right now, the situation is very different. One of the reasons why we see this protest is because of the economic stagnation and uh, spreading uh, dissatisfaction. But most importantly, I think, unlike what we saw in 2013 and uh, 2011-12 in Russia, these days, the protest that's emerging is different. At this point, back in 2011-12, and even somewhat 13, there was a lot of still infatuation, a lot of it, I would say, with Putin. There was still a belief that there's a possibility of a peaceful power transfer, some kind of color revolution. 
uh, when the authorities in Russia will recognize their mistakes and sort of, you know, apologize and leave peacefully. <laughs> At this point, you don't see that anymore. And Alexander Baunov in his article in Carnegie, he points that out, that one particular difference of the protest that we saw in Russia last weekend was the noticeable lack of humorous slogans and placards mm-hmm. in comparison with previous Russian protests. Also, the slogans lacked the usual appeals to the law, democracy, and the constitution. There was no calls to the authorities to follow the law, count votes fairly, allow candidates to run, and whatnot. That's because nobody expects them to. The stakes are very clear to both sides at this point, and I think this is new. Like, there's no disillusionment with the Kremlin being nice, listening to people ever again. People in Russia increasingly understand that they're facing very soon the future that, unfortunately, Belarusian people have already encountered. And Maria, I want to stick with you for a moment on this, because there is another aspect of this, and we'll get into this deeper in the second half, but right now you have the solidarity between the Russian street and the Belarusian street. You saw this with the, with, you know, we, you saw this in Habatovsk as well, where you had kind of solidarity between Belarus yeah. and Russian protesters. And we've seen this movie before the breakup of the Soviet Union. I mean, you remember the Baltic Way. Many, many Russians, you know, were part of the Baltic Way protests for Baltic independence, where the human chain stretched the borders of the Baltic states at that time. But then the minute the Soviet Union broke up, a lot of those who were protesting for democracy inside of Russia showed themselves to be very nationalistic after the fact. So they may be supportive of Belarus today and of the Belarusian streets struggle for democracy and independence today, but tomorrow they might revert back to their nationalism. If you follow my train of thought, do you see that? Do you see that? I mean, how, how strong is this nationalist strain among the protesters? Meaning that in this context, you refer to Russian nationalism as actually being the imperialism, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And because, I mean, we know Navalny has pretty much, you know, has a nationalist streak and a nationalist past. He, you know, his comments on Crimea do not give me confidence that a future hypothetical President Navalny would be any more friendlier to Ukraine than the current regime. I wonder. It's an open question as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, how do you see this dynamic playing out? Actually, I had to answer a very similar question earlier today with the panel devoted to these topics. And uh, it's important to realize, first of all, uh, Navalny is a democratic political candidate. Right now, and since 2014 until now, the issue of Crimea annexation has remained one of the key topics that's unchanged, unfortunately, in the Russian public mood. Over 80% since March uh, 2014 back and support Crimea annexation, unfortunately, for our you know Ukrainian friends. And that is just the reality of the Russian population these days. Navalny being the democratic politician and trying desperately to increase his mass support, you know, and, and undergoing prosecution of the authorities for it, he cannot possibly embrace a different viewpoint in this situation because that will just alienate huge shares of the Russian populations and leave him no hope for the future. That is when it comes to Navalny. But more broadly, I actually see a lot of promise in the democratic inclination of this liberal opposition uh, in Russia with Navalny in it, because I think uh, nationalism is perceived in the West through very negative frames, that is not necessarily the case in post-communist space. And here we have to refer back precisely to those uh, liberalizing democratic movements of late 1980s, early 1990s in post-communist Europe that all happened while embracing the nationalist themes, re-establishing of their own nationhood. 
by the countries, not ethnic countries, but citizens uh, mm -hmm. in the civic nationalism, meaning that finally we, the citizens of the country, are able to establish our own governance. And in this sense, I would see Navalny as a continuation of this legacy. And I actually see in Belarus actually embracing the same themes. Then nationalizing, liberalizing themes, meaning that these are the people of this country that have the capacity to establish their own rule, replacing the thieves and crooks and dictators that unfairly have control of the countries right now. So I would not necessarily dismiss any nationalism as being all negative and bad. I don't think that's the legacy of our region. Frank, I see you nodding. And as a Belarusian, as a Belarusian patriot who favors his country's freedom and independence and who is a, a key advisor to the, you know, to the main opposition figure and some would argue the legitimate ruler of Belarus, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, how do you, listening to Maria, what, what are you thinking? How do you view this support, you know, the, the moral support the Russian street is giving, the notion that they have been inspired by Belarusians. I mean, I, I understand that Navalny himself has been studying events in Belarus to get ideas about how to proceed going forward. How do you view this as a Belarusian? I really like to hear that Belarusian protests can inspire people in the world. And it was uh, super cool to see Belarusian flags and to see Belarusian chants on streets of Russian cities. And of course, uh, Russians were following closely all the events in Belarus. And I saw that for example, the, the live streams of TV Rain uh, almost every day were about Belarus and thousands of Russian people were, were cheering, you know, us like perhaps sometimes more than Belarusians themselves. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that the impact that was made by Belarusian protests, I'm sure that many Russians, especially in regions, were inspired because it showed that when the people are united, when people are connected, when people have goal, the common goal, they can do uh, many things together. And another similarity is how the protests are organized. I see that uh, this telegram revolution that happened in Belarus inspired a lot of Russian activists. And I, I see even copycats of Belarusian telegram channels that are leading the protest or inviting the protesters to gather at, at this place or another place. This actually started in, in Belarus. And I think it would be great if people who are creating these technological tools yeah, they will be working together. Yeah, no. Let me just quickly jump in just to say that Russian opposition leaders right now complain for the lack of next time of in uh, Russia today, right? Since it's the big, greatest, one of the greatest tools uh, that the uh, Belarusian people had uh, that allowed it to organize so effectively. Uh, no, I, I see. I see. Telegram is kind of like Pavel Durov's revenge, right? You know, Pavel Durov, the Russian entrepreneur who created, you know, Kontaktia, which is the Russian version of Facebook, which was taken over by the authorities. He left the country and founded Telegram, and now Telegram is being used by anti-regime protesters, which I just think is a, a just a beautiful, beautiful irony. I wanted to stick with you for a moment, Farhan. I can also get Maria's take on this, too, is like one of the things we touched on this a little bit earlier, but the unity, the simultaneous protests and the unity of the kind of the, the two streets, if you will, not only limits Lukashenko's options to turn west and to play that game, it also limits Putin's options. Now, we all remember a couple of weeks back the leak to the Russian news portal, the, the insider, that Putin was hoping, and there was a movement in the Kremlin, they were hoping to kind of co-opt the change in Belarus, create a pro-Russian party, 
force Lukashenko into accepting a parliamentary republic and basically win control of the, the Belarusian parliament. Quite frankly, this is something I always worried about in the event of massive political uprising in Belarus, that Russia would be able to co-opt the change. Franek, is my concern overstated there? I mean, do you see this plan that was spilled out in the insider leak as something that's really, really possible? Or is the Belarusian opposition wise to this and can take measures to counter it? That's a good question. I think that Lukashenko destroyed not only democratic forces and civil society, he made the whole political field sterile. And it means that uh, neither uh, pro-European forces nor pro-Russian forces were able to survive and grow in this sterile environment. And at this point, these several pro-Russian groups, Cossacks, organizations, or ultra-Orthodox initiatives, they have very limited impact on the situation. And I don't see any opportunity in the next one or two years for Russia to create the strong political party. I don't see any person uh, who can be pro-Russian candidate. Lukashenko was repeating that opposition candidates are pro-Russian before election date. He was saying that Tikhanovsky is pro-Russian, Babarika is pro-Russian. But as we see, all of them, except Lukashenko, they're pro-Belarusian, not pro-Russian. I'm sure that now Putin is trying to play his own scenario. He's trying to win some time. They're exploring the possibility to buy some media channels to create something like pro-Russian Nechta in Belarus. But still, they're not ready to change Lukashenko to someone else. Yeah. Because changing of Lukashenko or just stopping supporting of Lukashenko, it means they give full control over the situation to pro-democratic and pro-Belarusian forces. Yeah. And this is not acceptable. And it also sets a precedent that they do not want to set, that a leader can be overthrown through a popular democratic uprising. They do not want to set that precedent, especially when you have you know tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, depending on which estimate you believe, coming out in over 100 Russian cities across 11 time zones last weekend with more to come this weekend. Maria, this actually reminds me of a conversation you and I were having not long ago. We tend to overthink and overestimate Putin's cleverness. And we expect him to always come up with these really elegant solutions that are complicated and brilliant. I mean, a year ago, we expected him to kind of create a way to stay in power that wouldn't keep him as president, for example. We expected him to kind of create a state council and become kind of a, a I don't know, a, a supreme leader of Russia who's not a president. Instead, he just extended his term limits forever, right? In Belarus, we are expecting this elegant solution that's going to like find a way to manipulate the political change in order to get rid of Lukashenko, whom he hates, and put in somebody. And now he's stuck with the crudest, most obvious solution of all, and that's backing the dictator who's lost support of his people. That's all he's got. Are we overestimating Putin's cleverness? Or in Freud's terms, sometimes cigar is just a cigar. Right? <laughs> uh, yes, and which takes me to Alexander Gabuyev article at Foreign Policy earlier this week, where he argues that Russian uh, president actually has learned uh, from Lukashenko's experience and is much more sophisticated, clever and uh, nuanced uh, about Russian protesters. Specifically, uh, essentially, he argues Kremlin just choose to ignore the protesters and wait until their enthusiasm evaporates. It's as it happened in Khabarovsk, for example, where the largest and the longest protest in the region of Russia in years, essentially as evaporated by now, only like a thousand of participants turned out in Khabarovsk in support of Navalny last weekend, as opposed to earlier impressive numbers. I think the 
truth is somewhere in the middle, honestly. I think the Russian regime, first of all, is not as repressive and as brutal as the Lukashenko regime in uh, Belarus. So dictatorships also differ and as nasty as uh, the situation is in Russia right now, it's still not as bad as it is uh, in Belarus. In terms of repressiveness and in terms of, for example, the possibility to influence the authorities through other means. For example, earlier today, Vladimir Milov suggested that in some regions of Russia, rural Siberia, there's even some of the elections that are held, they're still relatively free, very few, some of them. There's still fair vote, vote count, not free elections, but fair vote count, uh, his words. So in this sense, there's a little bit more variation in Russia, and the situation is not quite where Belarus is at this point. We see, for example, that one of the military officers who brutally attacked the woman in St. Petersburg last weekend came and apologized to her publicly. Of course, it was all staged and insincere, but nonetheless, the, the move itself demonstrates that the authorities wants to communicate this idea that they're not as repressive yet. Uh, probably because they would af they're afraid, uh, following Ukraine's and Belarusian uh, scenario, to provoke more people in the streets if they show extreme brutality against regular citizens. That is rather different from the way they treat the opposition leaders, who are currently undergoing a strong wave of uh, repressions, essentially as we speak, being detained, their apartments being searched, etc., etc. Another key difference I just wanted to mention about our two cases, Belarus and Russia, is the state of the society. Right now in Russia, we observe a very strong polarization between two groups. One is younger and is primarily on internet. The one that's grown increasingly alienated from the regime, increasingly opposition-minded. That also addresses your earlier question, Brian, about what is different mm -hmm. this time. Yeah. This is different. This is very strong polarization in the society. Younger people just don't see any prospects under this regime, don't see any commonalities with this regime anymore whatsoever. Even the, the way Putin talks feels... Yeah completely obsolete to them. And it's very unclear how the regime is planning to reincorporate them back into mass support in the future, as it did in the past with other social groups. I think that is interesting. This is new, but that is also different from Belarus. Since in Belarus, Franek, please correct me if I'm wrong, it seems that the society is much more universal in its total rejection of uh, Lukashenko. It seems that it's driven by some kind of consensus uh, across different groups, as opposed uh, to Russia, where uh, there's actually an ongoing polarization among the social groups. Franek, is that correct? I think there is consensus already, and especially after August 9, uh, Lukashenko made all possible to unify people. And But I also think that Russia is at the very beginning of this change that already was made by Belarusians during six months. And if the protest will not be suppressed, pacified in the next weeks or months in Russia, in a few months, Russia can be in a very new reality. Uh-huh. Okay, well, that's a, that's a good segue to shift into our second segment now. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion, broaden the aperture, and look at the political uprisings in Russia and Belarus in historical perspective. Are we witnessing the continuation of the breakup of the Soviet Union 30 years after the fact? 
I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from the awesome Lithuanian capital city of Vilnius, a city I love dearly and miss a lot, is veteran Belarusian journalist Frana Kvechorka, an advisor to Belarusian opposition leader Svet Lana Tikhanovskaya and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And also joining us from Washington, D.C.'s hip and amazing DuPont Circle neighborhood is my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University, and like Franek and myself, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you, of course, can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушает. В России сегодня вступают в силу поправки в Конституцию. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже о сотруднике безопасности. С Новым годом вас. С Новым веком. So this year marks the 30th anniversary of the breakup of the Soviet Union. And while there was solidarity between the democratic and independence movements in the Soviet republics back in 1991, as soon as the USSR broke up, many things seemed to revert back to form. Soft authoritarianism, kleptocracy, arbitrary rule, and Russian imperialism quickly reared their collective heads. But step by step, the impulse towards self-determination, independence, and national awakening and democratic governance awoke as civil societies across the former Soviet space came of age. The 2003 Rose Revolution in Georgia, the 2004 Orange Revolution in Ukraine, the 2005 Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan, the 2018 Velvet Revolution in Armenia, and the current uprising in Belarus are all data points that seem to support this trend. There, of course, were places where authoritarianism and Soviet-style rules stubbornly held on, most notably Russia and until now Belarus, as well as Azerbaijan and most of Central Asia. Maria, are the events we are witnessing, we're returning to a question I asked in the earlier part, but I want to do a little bit deeper a dive into this aspect of it now. Are the events we are witnessing right now in Russia and Belarus the last act of the breakup of the Soviet Union 30 years after that empire officially broke up? To me, yes. I would like to draw your attention, Brian, to the change that's happening right now. It's happening in the countries where in late 1980s, 1990s, the bottom-up pro-democracy movement did not emerge, or at least did not emerge at the scale that we have seen in uh, post-communist republics, for example. I think that Belarus and Russia and other countries right now are catching up uh, with other countries of post-Soviet and post-communist region that had the same processes unraveling there in the same region 30 years ago. And by the way, I don't think even the time lag is random. 30 years is approximately one generation yes. lag. 
So we saw throughout this time a new generation emerge. The new generation has very different attitudes to the Soviet Union. Now, you know, when you take a post-communist politics class, everyone will tell you that Russia, and to some extent apparently Belarus as well, has very different attitudes towards the legacy of the Soviet Union as opposed to other post-communist countries. In countries with more established uh, history of sovereignty and uh, statehood before the USSR, the communist system was perceived as being imposed on them. To Russia, and perhaps to Belarus, Rana, correct me again if I'm wrong, please, the Soviet system felt very much as it has evolved from within, so it wasn't perceived as something hostile and alien to them. So in the country, in Russia specifically, the collapse of the Soviet Union, therefore, was largely perceived as a tragedy. It took 30 years for the whole new generation to emerge that has rejected uh, that legacy. And we see this generational change on a number of indicators, right? I mentioned before that this polarization in Russian society goes pretty much very much along the generational lines. The new groups that are coming of age these days are much more pro-Western, much more modernized in their attitudes, in terms of their attitudes, on all sort of issues, be it pro-democracy attitudes, more civic attitudes, higher respect to human rights, for example, higher, again, respect and tolerance for LGBT, other ethnicities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. From that perspective also, I think it addresses a little bit your earlier question, Brian, to what extent we are facing here the threat of another re-emerged Russian imperialism. I don't want to say that the threat is entirely gone, but I also have to say that the new generations that emerge and that are driving increasingly this rejection of the Soviet legacy, yeah. those are the social groups with different attitudes. And we see that on multiple polls. Those are the social groups that have much more the attitudes that, are, that make them much closer to their European uh, counterparts. And therefore, I think that the threat of the resurgence, re-emergence of this uh, Russian imperialism will be uh, mitigated when these groups come to power. Yeah, no, I agree with that, Maria. I, I would really like to see, and God, our friends at Levada, if you're listening, I would really like to see some cross-border sociological research done on social attitudes in uh, toward this very question that, Maria, you are outlining there in Belarus, in Russia, in Ukraine. I would like to, even farther, in Georgia and Armenia and other places, to, to, to whether this is a trend that is kind of going across borders. And I want to, with that, I want to kind of turn to Franek and pick up on something Maria said there about how the countries that had a stronger sense of statehood and nationhood, even in the Soviet period, and in this sense, I'm thinking of the contrast between Ukraine and Belarus, right? Um, and on paper, and I remember back in my days at Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, when we were looking at protests in Ukraine and Belarus, we always said, yeah, Belarus sure is in Ukraine. Right. Because the Belarusians fairly or unfairly had a reputation for being much more passive in this sense, in contrast to the Ukrainians. It's in Ukraine, as we all know, has a strong sense of nationhood separate from Russia, part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, at least in the western portions of Ukraine, part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and something that is strongly big. But Ferodic, you're in Vilnius right now, the capital of Lithuania. Belarus was also part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Belarus also has this history of being part of a state that was not Russia, right? The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth encompassed all of what is today Belarus, all of what is today Ukraine, all of what is today, of course, Poland and Lithuania, and even part of what is today Southern Russia, right? Um, it was the biggest state in Europe. But the thing I've always attributed to the difference between Ukraine and Belarus in this sense was the degree of the successful Russification of Belarus in contrast to Ukraine. How do you see this 
this sense of nationhood that, that Maria was talking about. You know, Brian, I think you're right. And Belarus was the most russified country in the Soviet Union. And definitely in Ukraine, which was uh, divided between Austro-Hungary and Russian Empire, uh, there was stronger Ukrainian identity, but also the bigger problem of the split between the West and, and the East. Belarus was not so divided, which is also can be the positive side, because for Belarusians, there is no West and East of Belarus. Right. There's no Donbass. Right. Uh, you know, so, support generally of Russia or European Union on the West and the East is, is almost the same. There is no such difference as it is in Ukraine. And I, I want to say that I am sure that Belarusians and Ukrainians have differences. The nationhood and the identity was formed differently. In Ukraine, it was formed earlier. In Belarus, perhaps a bit later, in the beginning of 20th century. But it doesn't mean it's weaker. At mm. this point, in 2021, I see how quickly Belarusians are passing this way to, the, to their own national identity. How quickly they reminding themselves about Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Grand Duchy of Lithuanian, Polotsk Duchy. So all these processes of identity formation, which took years and hundreds of years for European nations, they're taking now with modern technologies, with media, they're taking months and years. And as we mentioned in the beginning, we have entirely new nation. Belarusians will never say they are Russians. They will never say uh, Moscow is capital, for example. After this revolution and after you know this, this uprising, which surprised everyone in August, uh, they, they can say that we are proud of being Belarusians. And also, I see very responsible nation. You all remember these pictures when they cleaned the streets after the protest, after the rally. They took their shoes off when they were standing on the bench, for example. This is also something absolutely uh, shocking for, for, for many people, you know. So it's also, it also means they are, they are organized, they are disciplined. Uh, Belarusians are often referred to as uh, East European Germans. Mm. And uh, because, you know, even the protest, you know, there is like 100,000 people crossing the street and they wait on the red light, which is, <laughs> which is quite cool, you know. So when Lukashenko will be out, you know, these people will quickly reorganize themselves, will build their own state uh, and uh, no need for dictatorship. I recall uh, talking to a Russian analyst about Belarus years and years ago, and he, when he, in reference to Belarus, he said there is, in Russian, said this unexpected statehood of Belarus. And now, and at that time, he was talking about the state, right, the Lukashenko regime, yet it had this strong sense of statehood. And now we're beginning to see this unexpected, or at least it was unexpected to people that weren't paying attention, this unexpected national awakening. Where in the past, we tended to look at Belarusians, most of them spoke Russian as a first language, very few spoke Belarusian. That's changing. It's becoming very fashionable, I'm, I'm getting the impression, to, to speak Belarusian now. I was wondering, Franek, how much attitudes toward Russia are changing, toward the Russian people, and toward the Putin regime? Because in the past... Belarusian attitudes tended to be very warm toward both of those things. I'm wondering now, with Putin's tight embrace of Lukashenko and Lukashenko tightly returning the favor, if those attitudes are changing. Uh, we don't have many surveys on this question, but uh, there was one made by Belarusian uh, analytical workshop in October and November, which showed that 
uh, the support of integration with Russia changed from 51% to 40%, something like this. So it means this uh, constant support of Lukashenko and uh, criticism in Russian media of Belarus protest, it decreased the level of support of Russia among Belarusians. But, but now it's difficult to say because it's in the process. Mm-hmm. Belarusians just forming their attitude. And I feel like there is consensus in Belarus society that Belarus must be a neutral country. Mm-hmm. that Belarus can be friend for both, for Europe and for Russia. Uh, Belarusians believe that they can, that they shouldn't choose. They're pretty comfortable, you know, in being not a buffer zone, but I would say the bridge between mm-hmm. two civilizations. And I think this is why they supported so warmly Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, because she is exactly the representation of such attitude that you can be both. You shouldn't choose. You can be uh, pragmatic, with everyone. And when Svetlana Tsikhanovska is saying, when answering the question about Russia, she says, I'm okay, you know, we, we can be good friends with Russia, but what about Europe? We will be best friends with Europe too. And they, they love it. And even when we have, you know, two languages and they ask, so which language Belarusians speak and must speak, which national must be national, it can be both. The national language officially can be Belarusians, but everyone will speak Russian. That's normal. In Belarusian such dichotomy exists, and it's normality. Mm-hmm. Well, Maria, I want to turn to you with this because I hear what Franek is saying, and I do agree with you, Franek, that this is a very smart political position for Tikhanovskaya to take. It looks very reasonable to the outside world. But for those of us, those cynical Kremlinologists among us, like, like Maria and myself, when I hear that, when I hear neutrality and bridge between the two worlds, I mean, that is, in my opinion, a potential vehicle for Russian domination, soft Russian domination, this kind of neutral variance between the two. It is a term the Finns justifiably hate, the term Finlandization, right? Because we all know that Russia is very skilled at manipulating these situations, using oligarchic structures, weaponizing business and commerce, weaponizing information, and controlling their neighbors through non-kinetic means. Um, This was something I feared in Armenia, following the Velvet Revolution there. And I think it's bearing out as we move forward. It is very hard to be a neutral bridge between a kleptocratic authoritarian country and a liberal democratic West. It's very difficult to be neutral between those two normative things. And if we have the Belarus that I believe all of us on this podcast want, a free and democratic Belarus, the very existence of that is going to be a threat to Putin's regime, which going back to the thing I raised at the very beginning of the podcast, and I think it's a great thing to close on, can Belarus truly be free until Russia is free? Maria. Yes, uh, Brian, I agree, unfortunately. I do also very much empathize with Branax and Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, of course. I do see the reasons why she's saying uh, what she's saying. I think it's politically totally justified. And unfortunately, I just don't think there's a chance that in the near future, you know, there will be a possibility for her to implement her intentions in the first place. So that is uh, probably uh, not an issue in the first place. But overall, unquestionably, everyone, I think, agrees. And in Russia, 
Russia, many people understand that Belarus people's struggle for freedom would have been much more successful if it wasn't for Russia and for Russia's support that it provides. Interestingly enough, the chain continues. It doesn't stop with uh, Russia because all autocrats unite in this new world. And uh, the same goes for Russian leaders who are backed by China, at least indirectly. Mm -hmm. And I have many of Chinese friends asking me, Maria, what's going on in Russia? If Putin falls, then there is also hope for us in China. So <laughs> it's honestly, it's uh, all connected. And in this sense, yes, unfortunately, uh, for Belarusians uh, right now, as long as Putin is strong and powerful, there is little opportunities for uh, Belarus protests to win. But it's also good news because uh, as soon as Putin's regime is gone, I'm sure we are bound to witness the same collapse of other authoritarian regimes, mm -hmm. at least in the surrounding post-Soviet space, according to the same pattern that we observed in late 80s, early 1990s. So in this sense, it also gives us hope. It only should reinforce the you know, collaboration and mutual support among the democratizing movement in our countries. Franek, same question to you. You get the last word on this. And I also have one more question to you before you wrap up. I think both countries deserve to be free. I always believe that uh, Belarus will be free when, when Russia will become democratic. But fortunately and hopefully, I, I think Belarus can become free earlier than Russia. <laughs> and it's getting very, very possible in the nearest future. I mean, I think it would be a wonderful twist of fate if it were Belarus and Ukraine that basically led the way for Russia to be free. It would be a beautiful historical change. Before we wrap it up, I just want to ask you one quick thing, Franak. I was reading comments by Svetlana Tikhanovskaya following Navalny's return to Russia that she herself was considering returning to Belarus from her ex-self-imposed exile in Vilnius if her security and safety could be guaranteed. This would be a powerful symbolic thing. And I guess thinking along the same lines of the, how dramatic Navalny's return to Russia was. We don't want Svetlana Tikhanovskaya to be that dramatic for obvious reasons, because we don't certainly don't want that to happen to her. But I'm thinking also of the late Soviet Union. Andrei Sakharov's return from exile to Yaroslavsky Voksal in Moscow in, in 1986 was super dramatic and a galvanizing event. Under what conditions do you see Svetlana Tikhanovskaya returning to Belarus? I think she will return when negotiations will start or the revolution will be at its final stage. Because uh -huh. at this point, she will be detained immediately right away. Belarusian regime is harsher than Putin and it's almost totalitarian. We don't have any more organizations, initiatives, independent businesses, uh, media are legally working in Belarus at this point. Russia still has much more space, much more freedom. So I and I don't see the sense to return at this point, at this moment. Svetlana Tsikhanovska is traveling. She is meeting world yeah. leaders, talking to ministers, presidents, prime ministers. Yeah. She can do much more to raise awareness about Belarus and to help Belarusians being in Vilnius. And, and any day she is ready to return. Every day I hear from herself the question, Franek, when we are going home? And this is a, this is a fair this is the fair question. Well, to be sure to tell her she has a lot of people who are behind her and supporting her, both inside Belarus, obviously, but outside Belarus as well. And on that note, we shall wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Critical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore, and I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining 
joining me from Lithuania's awesome capital, Vilnius, which I can't wait to visit again, has been veteran Belarusian journalist Franek Pechorka, an advisor to Belarusian opposition leader Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, and also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And joining us from Washington, D.C.'s super hip DuPont Circle neighborhood has been my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University, and like Fronick and myself, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Thank you both for an enlightening and lively discussion. Thanks so much for having us, Brian. Thanks for being here. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Vegas is in the virtual control room. He keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn, who handles our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org and of course you can follow us on the twitter at power vertical join us again next week and until then i leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team